Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free. In today's political landscape, you may hear the words socialism and socialist thrown out pretty often. Depending on where you get your news, it could be used as a slur against progressive policies or a proposed alternative to our capitalist system. Now, why is there such a difference of opinion towards socialism? And where is this growing discontent with capitalism coming from? The disdain from socialism that you hear from your president's voice there and the applause from the crowd really aren't anything new in the U.S. Socialism and all that come with it have been portrayed as a nightmare scenario to Americans since the beginning of the 20th century. And many Americans today, be it by fear or the feeling that they know all there is to know, never really look into what socialism is. My name is Baudelaire, and today on The Soapbox, I'll dive a bit into socialism and explain some of the failures of capitalism that helped us get to this point. And the overarching question, which is, is there another way to run an economy? What's that box for? It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. First, let's get into what socialism is exactly. The dictionary definition of socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole. So let me break it down like this. Take a factory, for example. In a capitalistic society, the factory and everything in it belong to the owner. He then hires employees from managers to the dude sweeping the floor that get paid a wage that's usually as low as they would possibly accept for the owner wants to maximize his profits. Of course, a wage in most cases is negotiated, but then also, in most cases, the factory owner, to use this current example, has the most leverage. The wealth that's created from the factory, be it doors, cars, electronics, whatever it is the factory makes, is owned by the owner of the factory. He then, in many cases, gets richer and richer as time goes on. And if this hypothetical capitalist society is anything like the one we live in, the workers, who actually create the wealth, don't see increases in their wage proportional to the increase in wealth that the owner now has. In a socialist society, the factory and all the wealth it creates would be owned equally by the workers, and their quality of work, or lack thereof, would directly impact their wage as it would have the owner's profit. Now, that's a super basic analogy, but I want to get across to you uh, what is meant by community ownership of the means of production. Possibly one of the most famous critics of capitalism was a 19th century German philosopher by the name of Karl Marx. Karl Marx had a few major critiques of capitalism that I'll run through pretty quickly. His first was that modern work is alienating. By that, he meant that capitalism would get to a point where you can meet someone at a party and ask them what they do, and from their answer, you'd still have no real idea what it is they do. This specialization is what makes capitalism so efficient, but at the same time, it then leads to the separation between what it is we do for work and what we feel we could offer to society. 
You may work as a communication specialist, for example, right? And not be able to really explain what it is you do every day to someone if they ask you. And deep down, you probably don't feel that at work you bring anything to the world that it actually needs. Mark said that there would be a growing separation between what we do for work and what we feel we could bring to the world. And deep down as humans, we all have a longing to feel needed. A second critique Karl Marx had was that modern work is insecure. This means that your job is safe as long as technology allows it and there isn't a cheaper way. This has probably gotten worse since the days of Marx as if we go back to the factory example, no matter what you may bring to the factory as an individual, if a machine can screw bolts more efficiently than you can, then your days are numbered. Your days are also numbered if the factory sees an opportunity to outsource your job to China or Mexico, where the same job could be done for a tenth of the price. To what I said before, workers get paid little as possible while capitalists, the owners, focus is only on maximizing profit. This means no position remains safe. Uh, ironically, as some businesses grow and eventually go public, even the owner's job isn't safe as he or she can then be removed by a board of directors. Lastly, we have the fact that crises are a natural part of capitalism, but capitalists act as if they're anomalies every single time. Recessions are simply a part of the game when dealing with free markets, and every time they come, the capitalists will pretend as if this is the last one. Those in the 1% only feel slightly less rich, but can, for the most part, continue with their regular lifestyles, while the people who feel it the worst are you and I, who are much closer to the bottom than we are to the top, economically speaking. But back to socialism. We live today with many socialist ideas that have become such a part of our everyday lives that we don't associate these institutions with socialism or the Socialist Party anymore. Social Security, uh, free public schooling, public libraries are just a few examples, but few people know that the 40-hour work week, along with the weekend, and child labor laws are also ideas that were brought to the forefront in our society by socialists in the early to mid-20th century. Even during those economic crises that I mentioned before, it's usually the state, via the people's tax dollars, that bail out the corporations and save them from their own mistakes. So those big corporate bailouts can even be considered socialist policies, but just to the wrong people. We are going to delve more into this later, but the same state that refuses to bail out a generation of young people who seemingly made the mistake of taking out loans to seek higher education, bailed out millionaires and billionaires in the housing and car industries under the guise of saving jobs, when the majority of the bailout money stayed in the hands of high-level executives. Now, why are people so anti-socialism? The idea that socialism is the worst thing to happen to humanity has its roots in post-World War II fears, where the U.S., fearing the spread of communism and the rise of the working class, which happened in Russia, and its threat to the market system, spread through the media that socialism is what's happening there, and socialism spells the end of all the freedoms you've come to enjoy. So it really was propaganda early on that was used to deter the working class from demanding reforms. Propaganda that sounded something like this. Now let's look at the facts about socialism, shall we? Venezuela, a rich country blessed with bountiful natural resources, is now a hellhole. Look what its experiment with socialism has wrought. Nearly 90% now live in poverty. Starvation. The average person lost 24 pounds last year, and they're not trying to diet. Sick people are taking dog medicine. There's a massive toilet paper shortage, and it's now the murder capital of the world behind El Salvador. If Democrats want to bring socialism to America, it makes me wonder, do they want to destroy America? 
People think of socialism and they usually associate it with the USSR, Cuba, or Venezuela like the dude from Fox News just did. But that's a misleading association. Yes, those countries called themselves socialists, but only to gain from the moral appeal of socialism, while the workers in those countries actually had very little to no control over the means of production or the wealth. Those countries are or were led by dictators who have done away entirely with the democratic process. This, of course, is communism. Socialism, when practiced effectively, looks more like the Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark than they do like the USSR or Venezuela. Those countries, meaning Sweden and Denmark, can't exactly be called socialists entirely, but they do have many socialist elements to their economies. Capitalists, hearing this, will point to the innovative capacity of capitalism and say that it can't be matched by any other system. And I'd agree to that, but at what cost do we get this innovation? During the last couple years of his life, Martin Luther King would speak to that point exactly in his speeches. The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms, he says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy with the multiplying of your machinery. You grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous, dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. And wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. There are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business. This tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudiced charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity. And to think Martin is saying this in 1967, long before the smartphone and studies over it and social media's effect on our brains is linked to the rising cases of anxiety and depression in our society. That MLK speech in particular could make its own episode, and who knows, maybe one day it will. Fourteen years after Martin made that speech, Ronald Reagan would become president and bring with him his economic theory that would be known as Reaganomics. Reaganomics would be based on three pillars. The deregulation of businesses the use of private contractors for what used to be government services, and decreasing spending on social welfare programs, food stamps, and social security, for example. The Reagan presidency was a great time to be on Wall Street, and during his time in office, Reagan made his way to Wall Street to say this. The last time I visited the New York Stock Exchange was in 1980, and the mood sure was different then. Government, with its high taxes, excessive spending, and overregulation had thrown a wrench in the works of our free markets. With tax reform and budget control, our economy will be free to expand to its full potential, driving the bears back into permanent hibernation. That's our economic program for the next four years. We're going to turn the bull loose. Turn the bull loose, he said. Uh, some of you may know the bull sculpture that stands in Wall Street, and during his presidency, Reagan did turn the bull loose. It was during his presidency that the top income tax rate was slashed from 70% to 28%, the lowest tax rate since the 20s. And personally, I have no love loss for Ronald Reagan. Uh, it was during his presidency, and many blame him specifically for the spread of crack cocaine throughout black communities all throughout the U.S. It has actually been proven that under his watch, the CIA was 
funding some of the very drug cartels responsible for flooding inner city America with cocaine. Now, I could do a whole other episode on how that affected and will continue to negatively affect the black community for generations, but that's not what we're here for. In the 1980s and 90s, a culture would spring up from those communities that were so horribly affected by Reagan's policies. And a man who I believe is the greatest child that culture ever produced would have his own critiques of American capitalism. It's a part in the country where we care about him. Lady Liberty got a hand like this, she really loves us, then we really need to be like that. And it needs to be the black kids. If there's a, a white person who got money, then you need to help him. He need to help black kids, Mexican kids, Korean kids, whatever. But it needs to be real. And it needs to be before we all die and then you say, oh, I made a mistake. We should have gave them some money. We really should have helped these folks. It's going to be too late. You know what I'm saying? And then that's when you got to pay your own karma. And that's when God make you punish. When, you, when God punishes you. Because I feel like, you know, it's too much money here. I mean, nobody should be hitting Lotto for 36 million and we got people starving in the streets. That is not idealistic. That's just real. That is just stupid. There's no way Michael Jackson should have, or whoever Jackson, should have a million thousand, drupal billion dollars and then there's people starving. There's no way. There's no way that these people should own planes and their people don't have houses, apartments, shacks, drawers, pants. You know what I'm saying? Or, look, okay, I know you're rich. I know you got $40 billion, but can you just keep it to one house? You only need one house. And if you only got two kids, can you just keep it to two rooms? I mean, why have 52 rooms and you know there's somebody with no room? It just don't make sense to me. It don't. And then these people celebrate Christmas. They got big trees, huge trees, all the little trimmings. Everybody got gifts, and then somebody starving. Now, me personally... I believe we have too many problems in our society today to believe that capitalism as it stands is working for enough people to not need major structural reform. I understand that socialism doesn't innovate like capitalism does, doesn't produce consumer goods as well as capitalism does, and definitely won't completely solve the deep-seated issues that we have like racism and sexism. But just because socialism isn't completely the answer doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to the critiques of capitalism that have been raised by socialists and people who lean towards socialist policies. What socialism, or a heavier dose of socialism into our current society, can solve is issues like the student loan crisis, homelessness, and the need for universal health care. If there's another way to solve these issues, then by all means, let's do that. But what we have now is an economy that's too closely tied to Wall Street and the interests of billionaires. There's this idea that what's good for Wall Street is good for the average American, but that isn't necessarily true. Do you guys remember Occupy Wall Street? It began September 17, 2011 in Zuccotti Park in New York City, just a few blocks from the financial capital of the world. Inspired in part by Arab Spring protests overseas. Wall Street is our street! Wall Street! Occupy Wall Street was a social movement against income inequality, corporate greed, and the influence of big business in politics. Almost overnight, the diverse group of demonstrators grew to tens of thousands, spreading to hundreds of cities across America, and more than 80 countries worldwide. But patience among city leaders and law enforcement wore thin, and authorities began arresting protesters and clearing their encampments. And roughly two months after it launched, the Occupy movement faded into winter. But the movement didn't fade. The goal of the movement was to bring attention to and loosen Wall Street hold on our everyday lives. 
But maybe it'd be best for you to hear from actual protesters back then. It's our duty as Americans to fight for our country and to keep it, you know, true to serving its people. And when it doesn't do that, it's immoral not to stand up and say something. I'm here myself as a free individual to humanize the markets and to have true participatory democracy, bottom-up democracy, and to make Wall Street hear the sound of what democracy means. What kind of power? People power! Wall Street, it crashes, and uh, you know people starve, people lose their jobs, things like that. We're very angry at Wall Street. It's the heart of capitalism, American capitalism especially. That's why we're here today at Wall Street. Yes, the protesters in Zuccotti Park left, but the Occupy movement then spread to major cities all over the world, with some cities' protests lasting up to seven months. 7,000 people would go on to be arrested, and people asked what was gained. Well, it energized the generation. It showed young people that would chant Black Lives Matter and vote for more progressive politicians that there are more of us than them. In 2019, Business Insider reported that 70% of millennials asked said that they would vote for a socialist. Now, to me, that says that we as young people are starting to realize that things could be and perhaps should be done another way. One of those progressive politicians that were voted in and my favorite politician at work today is a Democratic Socialist. She is a senator out of New York City by the name of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC for short. Now, democratic socialism is a political philosophy that advocates for political democracy alongside a socially owned economy, with a particular emphasis on workers' self-management and democratic control of economic institutions within market socialism, or some form of a decentralized planned socialist economy. Now, that was a lot. Um, so I, it'd probably be best if I allowed AOC herself to explain her own views of democratic socialism. You know, just as there's all this fear mongering that government is going to take over every corporation and government is going to take over every business or every form of production, um, we should be scared right now because corporations have taken over our government. And in my opinion, we should be wary of any entity in which both of those things are combined, whether it's through one way or the other. Um, and that's why the emphasis in democratic socialism is on democracy. And it's not about, you know, it, it, it's, it's just as much a transformation about bringing democracy to the workplace so that we have a say and that we don't check all of our rights at the door every time we cross the threshold into our workplace. Because at the end of the day, as workers and as people of society, we're the ones creating wealth, not a corporate CEO. It's not a CEO that's, make, that's actually creating $4 billion a year. It is the millions of workers in this country that's creating billions of dollars of economic productivity a year. And our system should reflect that. In that clip, AOC referenced the fact that corporations have taken over our government. Now, that form of government is called a plutocracy, and many, including myself, would argue that that's what we live in now. AOC is for a 70% tax rate on the wealthy, starting at the 10 millionth dollar, meaning only every dollar after that will get taxed at 70%. If you remember earlier, before Ronald Reagan, that was the top tax rate. So it's sort of funny that she's called a crazy socialist for an idea that actually existed in the U.S. in a more radical form, actually just 40 years ago. The money gained from this tax will go towards funding the programs that uh, AOC and her peers stand for, including free college tuition, student debt forgiveness, and universal health care. Now, 
It'll take more than just the dollars that come in from that tax increase to pay for those programs. But what democratic socialists are ultimately in favor of is a reanalyzing of our priorities as a society. What excites me about AOC and this new wave of politicians that call themselves uh, democratic socialists isn't just the demystifying of the term socialist, but it's a willingness that I see to be held accountable. All right, let's take a quick break right there to give a shout out to your food plug. Your food plug is a catering service located in Brooklyn, New York, offering service to all five boroughs for events such as birthday parties, baby showers, office parties, and really whatever you'd need a whole lot of food for. Being able to provide multiple dishes and desserts from different cultures is what makes each and every order from your food plug worth it. Trust me. Go check out their Instagram at your food plug and look at their work. Now, I'm hungry right now as I say this, so I'm really stressing myself out even talking about this food. I've been to a couple events catered by your food plug. And if you're going to believe anything I say, believe this. Your food plug is the best catering service in New York City. You can request an order via Instagram DM at your food plug. That's Y-A-F-O-O-D-P-L-U-G. Or send an email to yourfoodplug.bk at gmail.com. Again, that's yourfoodplug.bk at gmail.com. Mention the soapbox when ordering and you'll get 15% off your first order. Now back to the show. And how could I critique capitalism today without mentioning our current coronavirus crisis? Now, I won't say that capitalism is the cause of this crisis, but there are reasons related to capitalism while getting past this virus will be even more difficult. For example, why don't we have more tests? Well, there are two major reasons, according to healthcare economist Zach Cooper. The first being that the U.S. medical supply chain, a lot of which runs through China, has been disrupted. That can't be blamed on capitalism. But the second major reason is that firms would be tasked with making tests at a rate that has never and may never be seen again with no real return on investment. Those firms would have to burden the cost of creating the tests. Currently, the workaround has been giving these companies the money to create the tests. The amount that would be needed is estimated to be about $250 billion, while in the most recent quote-unquote CARES Act, only $25 billion was allocated to coronavirus testing. Again, the issue here is the return on investment for tests isn't high. I mean, imagine what a COVID-19 cure would do to the market price of a diagnostic test. Now, let's move on to the essential workers who aren't getting paid as if they are as essential as they really are to our society. Wall Street bankers, for example, are working from home right now, if at all, with more than enough money to live through this, while people who work the jobs society often ridicules, getting paid a wage that isn't a livable wage without overtime, are working through the pandemic and helping us all. The least we can do, after all this is over, is address how unfair it is that essential workers, aka the foundation of our economy and society, are paid as if they don't matter, when right now, we can clearly see not only do they matter, but they are vital. Let's, while we appreciate those who are still working, realize that these are the people that deserved our appreciation all along. Let's not just tip our hat to them, but realize that as the foundation of our society, their interests are our interests, and let's prioritize the raising of their wages when we eventually recover. Recently, ALC spoke with Vice News about the socioeconomic factors that have also been thrown into COVID-19 relief. When the stay-at-home orders were first issued, we saw a massive shift Uh, in the direction of progressive policy. You had Mitt Romney talking about a universal basic income. You had Republicans talking about UBI, talking about free health care. You had Republicans talking about this. You know, up, like just forced up against the wall to confront reality. They said, this is what we have to do. And then a couple of interesting things happened. It felt like once the racial data 
came out that showed that this was disproportionately impacting working class people and black and brown people, it was almost like within days, a lot of those ambitions just fell. But when we didn't know who it was going to impact, when all of us felt vulnerable, we were ready to change. But when we started to see that this was impacting vulnerable people more and that more affluent people and more more of the privileged were kind of shielded in a way, it, we're almost kind of dragging back to business as usual. And I think that at the very least should be a moment of reflection for our country. So now let's talk about the world after COVID-19, a world where things may drag back to business as usual, as AOC said. As Paul Mason wrote for Al Jazeera, if we follow the orthodox economic playbook now, just as after 2008, once the crisis is over, political elites will call for more austerity, healthcare cuts, wage cuts, and tax rises for ordinary people to reduce government spending and erode the debt pile. It is the logic of the free market, but many people will see it as madness. In the 14th century, once the mass death phase of the plague was over, that is exactly what the feudal elites tried to do to reimpose their old privileges and traditions and economic logic on a population that had just lived through the most traumatic event imaginable. Back then, it led to immediate and bloody revolts, the Peasants' Revolt in England, the so-called Jaquiri in France, and the takeover of cities like Ghent, Paris, and Florence by artisans. Though the post-plague revolts failed, they led to a permanent change of mindset among the masses, from utter dependency and fear to a new confidence that they, too, could change the world, fundamentally altering the social and political conditions of their lives. And that, in turn, paved the way for the bourgeois revolutions that unleashed a new system, capitalism. To be completely honest, I think the idea of capitalism and socialism as standalone ideas are an antiquated way of thinking that we as a people should have done away with a long time ago. Capitalism was birthed after a pandemic, and perhaps once we're through with this, we'll begin the formation of a new system. But more than we need to rid ourselves of any political or economic system, we need to rid ourselves of this idea that we can set a form of government and or economic policy in motion and it solve our issues. What ultimately maintains a healthy and vibrant society is a well-informed and politically active citizenry that holds their leaders accountable. Am I a capitalist? Hell no. I believe capitalism has led to more distress and suffering than it's willing to claim, but I also see some valid critiques of socialism. The way forward, I believe, is a mixed economy that is much more socialist than the one we live in now. And before we move on to a new form of economy, we need to come to some sort of consensus that our current one is failing way too many people. What I will leave you all with now is a word from the 32nd president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR did not live to see post-World War II, where he planned to implement this idea, but he had an idea that I believe would have avoided us being where we are today. You may hear FDR and say to yourself, there's no way we could do this, but I ask you, why not? In our day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, 
to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accidents, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. You can go to bonos.com for the full versions of all the audio clips used in this episode. That's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S.com. And as is the case with all episodes of La Soapbox, I'm welcoming opinions, questions, concerns, whatever you have. Just use the voice memo feature on your phone and record what you have to say. Bonus episodes will come out sporadically addressing these thoughts from the people. There's no time limit and your clip will play in full during the next bonus episode. Just email your memo to thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. Also, the best memo will get a gift from the show, either a book relating to your topic or a free t-shirt. You can also follow me on Instagram at Bonos, again that's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S, or on Twitter at Baudelaire, that's B-A-U-D-E-L-A-I-R-E. That's all I have for you today on The Soapbox. Thank you for listening. And they listen, they listen, they listen.